like to continue <clears throat> where we left off a few evenings ago. We were beginning to talk about the Bodhi Karata Sutta and <clears throat> I was hoping that uh, throughout this retreat as you hear the sutta and some commentary on it you begin to, you begin to see how alive it is and how helpful it is um, and I'm attempting to do that even in the groups where people would get all caught up in the future or all caught up in the past I try to point that out not all the time or we never would have gotten one question done but sometimes Let me have a number of translations and I'd like to talk about some of what I've been learning in uh, going through these different translations. It won't be that esoteric. Perhaps for some of you who are really new, I apologize if some of what I get a certain pleasure from seems ridiculous to you. Uh, for those who have worn out a few cushions over the years, uh, I think you'll understand. In any case, the content of the sutra, just the title alone, uh, has generated a tremendous disparity. I mean, the different names it's been given, and I think it's quite interesting. Um, let me just review. I have a number of different fragments of translations. I hope I can do my juggling act gracefully here. The core of the teaching is a, a gata or a dharma poem. <laughs> and the sutta itself is this poem, not too long, and then the Buddha's commentary and I'll be uh, commenting on that. But just to refresh your memory, uh, do not pursue the past, or it could, could read, do not revive or chase after the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not yet come. Look deeply at life as it is in the very here and now. The yogi dwells, dwells in stability and freedom. We must be diligent today to wait until tomorrow is too late. Death comes unexpectedly. How can we bargain with it? The sage calls a person who knows how to dwell in mindfulness night and day. And here's where all the different titles come in. Um, at first I was in, it was a little bit of confusing, and then I realized that they're all correct. Each one of them is great. And if you read, take them all together, it really enriches the sutra. And I don't know if the translators would agree with me. Probably not. So who is this yogi who uh, the sutra extols? It's someone who, let's say, who, who knows true solitude. So that's one definition. It's also been called 
um, I, the love of ideal solitude. It's also been called a better way to live alone. If you recall, it's also been called an auspicious day. That is, what is truly auspicious? And it was, in a sense, in reaction to people at the time looking for omens and signs from all over to tell them if it was an auspicious time for them to do things. And what the Buddha uh, very often was against, superstition, certain cultural limitations that existed at the time. And we say, well, I'll tell you what's really auspicious. It's don't get lost in the past, don't get lost in the future, and look deeply into the present moment. What could be more auspicious than that? Okay, and the third title, and this is a third or fourth, I can't keep up with them, uh, is really great. It says, uh, it's called The One Fortunate Attachment. So here we are talking about non-attachment. We're just getting rolling. You know, by the time this retreat is over, you'll hear that word letting go, non-attachment, until it's coming out of your ears. And now here's the title, there is one fortunate attachment. And what it's saying is, and I would say that we should all be so lucky as to have this one attachment, is that if you're attached to not getting caught in the past, not getting caught in the future, and looking very deeply into the present moment, seeing it insightfully, uh, I wish that on all of us. But then you might say, well, but if it's still an attachment, you're going to suffer. Sometimes things will come up and you can't be mindful and da-da-da-da. Uh, yeah, but if you're also attached, then you look at that. Or if you want to be really cautious, you could say, be attached to mindfulness, to, being, to seeing clearly into this moment. Uh, if you can get attached to that, then we'll talk about letting it go. <laughs> That's my addition to the commentary. <laughs> but right now, I don't see that any of us are endangered as being <laughs> chronic mindfulness yogis. Did you meet Larry? The guy, he just can't stop being mindful. Day and night, wherever you look, there he is, mindful again. I don't think so. Okay. One of the meanings of mindfulness, there are many connotations of it, is that which sets things right, which is a rather beautiful way. For those of you who have practiced for a while, you know how valuable. There's something about the energy of attention, seeing energy, that when it touches things, it always makes it better. It's healing, it's transformative, and so forth. It takes the power out of what's awful. Uh, it enhances what's good. I don't know, am I being too romantic? Have you seen any of this? I have. That's why we do this stuff. Uh, we were also uh, last time talking about uh, your life here at the center on retreat, that there is, there is a daily life here too. It's not that um, you go back to wherever you go back to, to return to daily life and now you're in Yogi Land, Yogiville. There's a daily life here. Don't, isn't there? There's, a da there's only daily life as far as I can make out anywhere. Uh, we eat. We wash up, we dress, we take care of the needs of the body. We all have yogi jobs. This is my yogi job, and Michael has his. This, this is our job. So everyone, no one gets off here. We're not on scholarships. 
we're doing yogi jobs, not, not against scholarships, I mean uh, we have a yogi job. And in life, most people have jobs. Um, what was being suggested is that if you take this sutta to heart, that means, let's say, literally your yogi job, uh, if you don't like it, and many of you were not crazy about your yogi job, remember we had a show of hands, uh, it's not to pretend to like it now that you've heard this teaching, it's more to approach the job and see if you can be right there with pots or whatever, right there in the bathroom, right there uh, vacuuming. And when your mind wanders from it, return to right there. And of course, often it wanders because of future or past. Future is, if you don't like it, we're, we're constantly inventing a future to take us away from a present that we don't like. I just did it, I, I noticed today, a very small example of it, taking a walk around the loop. I've seen it before, and today when it's very cold, I like, try to be as mindful as I can as I'm walking around the loop. But I've noticed that on cold days, the mind doesn't like to be mindful of how cold it is, how the face was feeling cold. And suddenly, it starts going, thinking a lot, much more than usual. And I bring it back, and you can see, I don't want to be mindful of how cold it is to be walking. I want to think of, we're about halfway done. Soon we'll be back at the center, and you can take off all this load of clothes and warm up. And uh, So what was that about? Then, then I can hear some of the skeptics. Well, what's wrong with that? Why do, you, why do you need to feel cold? If you're cold, why not have a nice fantasy about being in Florida while you're walking around the loop? <laughs> some of you have said things like that. Sure, you can do it. Uh, there's the short and the long-term implications of that. In the short term, actually, if you can, as you begin to see how the resistance the mind has, let's say, to being with the cold, and this is small. Uh, as you see the resistance, the resistance starts to weaken. And then you're with what's there. And as you go more deeply into the body, actually the walk can have some joy in it, along with the cold. They're both there. It's not that you don't feel the cold. You do. And, and I'm not saying that it's just the same. It'd be nice if it weren't so cold, but it isn't. This is the way it is. And in the long run, you're cultivating an attitude of being with the way things are. Uh, that's, I would say, the heart of what we're learning here. One way of looking at Vipassana meditation, which is a way that I find helpful, is that one of the main skills that we're learning, the Buddha had a lot of respect for skill. He said that skills could be learned. They could be mastered. And in this sense, what we're learning is the skill of living the art of living, or wisdom. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Where was I? Someone, I'm so in the now that I've left that. <laughs> what? Yeah, even a little before that. <laughs> no help. What? Help. What? <laughs> You're going to try and get me confused that you're succeeding. Yeah, I got it. I got it. <laughs> One 
one way of looking at our practice is that what we're learning is how to expand our capacity, widen our capacity to receive our own experience so that more and more, uh, less and less is blocked out, disapproved of, repressed, denied, avoided, etc. cetera. Uh, the whole secret of the practice is to get comfortable. Uh, Self-knowledge is in, in a more, another way of putting it is learning how to make friends with yourself so that whatever is there is not intimidating. Uh, you, you more and more start to develop confidence that it's workable. Even some of the things that some of you in the group have said have visited you, it's workable. If you, if, if you practice, if you learn the art of looking deeply into it. Um, but in order to learn that, how to widen your ability to receive your own experience, it's kind of odd that we have a hard time receiving our own experience. Uh, we're up against a very, very powerful urge to not be in the moment. Uh, we use the future and the past materials to craft a sense and reinforce and develop a sense of self. The ego doesn't get much satisfaction from when you're totally in the present moment with very little thinking. It, it's bored. Looked at from that point of view, what is it? It's not, it's just quiet. It's, I'm not in it. I'm not part of this. Get back to a future where, you know, we can plan out what we're going to become if we keep doing this practice. Or the bad old days of the past would brought me here or something that, you know, that I can feed off. But just being clear-eyed and right there, present, all these other words you guys use, guys means both sexes. Just don't want any trouble. <laughs> <laughs> A number of years ago, there was a piece of research that was brought to my attention. They did a study of the most common theme, themes in Hollywood movies. And the one that won was, let's get out of here. <laughs> uh, and if your town is anything like Cambridge, there's lots of bumper stickers which say, I'd rather be golfing, I'd rather be fishing. I'd, somehow we'd rather be anywhere but where we are. So. It's not just about Hollywood. Let's get out of here. Uh, drop into the future. Drop into the past. Now, some of that is painful. And so sometimes we're sucked into the past, we can, and it's painful. Or even a future can be very frightening. Um, but however, we, we don't get to the present moment. We often don't get there. We're not there. And so what we're learning is the art of being where you are. We are much more interested in learning how to get from A to B and then from B to C and C to D. Everything is to get somewhere else. Uh, some of us are so ambitious that we want to get from A to Z in one jump. And the practice is learning how to get from A to A. But you might say we're already at A. Are we? Well then, be at A. If you're fully at A, that takes you to B. It's like with the breath. Don't worry so much about, will it lead to calm? Am I calm? Just take each breath carefully, and you'll find that has a dynamic energy. OK, um, the breath is a very useful metaphor for the practice, not just uh, on the cushion. Uh, it's, what it's saying 
and this is a very ancient way of viewing the breath, is that exhale, when we exhale, we let go of all that's stagnant, old, dead, not needed anymore. And that makes room for something fresh and new. And so as you conduct yourself on the retreat, when the sitting is over, exhale it. And fully, so you can fully inhale the walking. Uh, and so forth throughout the day. Uh, and of course you're going to be pulled off course. Some of it is because we're not too interested in the small stuff that makes up our day. But one of the things that you learn from this looking deeply into the present moment is that the most ordinary thing can be very, very rich so that life it comes to life. You don't just need exceptional outer events to enliven you because just being alive in whatever context, even if it's just washing a pot or whatever, you tell me, it changes the nature, the quality of your living. So the reason I'm fussing over this is that uh, over the years, quite a few years, I've seen uh, attachment to the past, attachment to the future in regard to meditation practice, in regard to retreats at IMS, uh, very much uh, causing certain problems when we get home. Because somehow we've gotten wounded at home. We come crawling here to get healed. This is sort of the tent, you know, a field hospital, and using military terms. We've gotten wounded, and you're here to get fixed up. And either you don't want to go back, as soldiers don't often, but our job is to throw you out and back into combat. Combat is just your ordinary life and to deal with what's going on. And the tools we develop here are meant to be a way of living and to be used. If you come to make certain forms too special, like sitting, like long, long retreats, they are special. But if you fixate on them at the expense of the rest of life, that's most of life that you're not giving your best energy to, not trying to learn how to understand relationship, not try, trying to understand how to live off the cushion, how to use this being in the present moment in every situation. Uh, years ago, uh, I, what I noticed was that we would come off three-month retreats and even longer from IMS, and I started to see a pattern uh, over the years of people who would come off retreat, three-month retreats. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with the three-month retreat. Uh, I was doing them. Um, and the person would wear that three-month retreat like a combat ribbon. And a lot of the conversation about what happened on the three-month retreat, what insights I had, which teacher I preferred, this, data, you know, and all. And then the other kind of conversation was future. How can I raise the money to go back to next year's three-month retreat? Uh, what kind of job and so forth. In the meantime, merely nine months go by. Well, what are those nine months? So we're kind of being buffeted back and forth between uh, past and future. And uh, all there is is the present, always. Let me give you a dramatic example, and then I'm going to go into the sutra itself. Some years ago, um, I spent a year uh, practicing at monasteries in Korea. Uh, my teacher and two other uh, two monks and myself uh, 
went over there with him. Uh, he was a Korean Zen master. And when we arrived, uh, we were either the first or almost the first Americans who'd ever come to practice uh, in Korea. This is, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago. And uh, we weren't used to Korean food. And I particularly, to put it mildly, wasn't. Also, Korean food doesn't include breakfast, and I love breakfast, my favorite meal of the day. And I don't want to eat uh, pickled cabbage and brown rice and soup for breakfast. I want pancakes. <laughs> but there it was again, kimchi and something like miso soup and pickled cabbage. And so the bad joke started. Boy, I would even, this is me, on and on, uh, even a house of pancakes or international, that really looks great now. Wow, even cornflakes, I would just drool over, just a bowl of cornflakes. Anything, just a, no, a good American breakfast. And it was going on and on. Finally, my teacher got fed up with me <laughs> and kind of pushed me against the wall, so to speak, and said, screamed at me very, very loud. Where are you? And I timidly said, Korea. <laughs> and then he said, exactly. <laughs> so, um, oh. At that point, I dropped all the fantasies of cornflakes and international pancake house. And actually, the food was quite good. Today, Korean food is one of my favorite dishes, but I couldn't give it a chance because I was eating through the, through the past. I was stuck in the past. I didn't even know what it was except that it wasn't what I was conditioned to like. The plot thickens. We then did a three-month retreat way up in the mountains, and the two other Americans and myself, and we didn't know that there was a tradition in this tradition that after, uh, it's a 90-day retreat, after 45 days, you go for one week without sleep. And we were furious, terrified. Every, we went through every emotion. And the first day was a nightmare, literally. We thought of, let's get on the next plane and get out of here. But we were too embarrassed because we were like ambassadors from America. And then they would think, uh, Americans are wimps. They can't sit Koreans then. You know, so we had to stay there. Out of all the wrong mo emotions, motives. And it was torture. Just thinking, oh my god, we're, it's just the afternoon. We got almost six and a half more days of this to go without any sleep, and they really meant it. So uh, late at night, there was the opportunity to speak to the Zen master, who wasn't, he was available. He was 94 years old, Hayam Sanim. He couldn't walk, and he had to be carried into the room by, by his attendants, but his mind was very, very clear. And I told him the problem. I said, my God, how are we supposed to do this? You know. Uh, uh, in the meantime, our minds were going back before I saw him. My, our, my, my mind, I think everyone else's, was going back to, oh, the nice retreats in, in Cambridge and Providence and, and in, in America. We have our own food and uh, you don't have to stay up for a week. And, you know, or, <laughs> you know, or getting into the future, imagining this nightmarish future that awaited us of no sleep. And I was, we were going back and forth between where we could have been if we'd only been smart enough to stay home in the first place and what's going to happen to us, which we didn't know, but it can't be good. And he listened to me. And then he said, 
look, part of what the problem is, is you're carrying around seven days without sleep. And it's weighing a ton. Your mind is imagining what seven days without sleep is. Look, thousands of people have done it. For, it's over a thousand-year-old tradition. You can do it. But drop all your, drop, let go of the past. Sound familiar? Stop imagining what it's going to be and just take each activity in turn as it comes up. When it's time to sit, just sit. When it's time to walk, just walk. Eat, just eat. Go to the bathroom, just go to the bathroom. And just live that way. And when the mind starts getting hysterical about an imagined future or longing for a slightly, somewhat romanticized past, just come back to keep it simple. What are you doing right now? It was magic. We got through it. We even went one extra day. It was, I'm not saying it was easy. And I, you notice I'm not, we're not inflicting it on anyone here. <laughs> because I think the hall would be empty or something. I don't know. But um, I learned something and it generalizes. Here you perhaps can see some of the power of living in the moment. I saw when 9-11 uh, happened, the Twin Tower uh, disaster many people were not only suffering the suffering of the present, what was happening, but the mind started imagining, where's the next attack going to happen? What's gonna, where, what shouldn't I do? Where shouldn't I go? Where, and it was just compounding it. And I remembered these teachings. It, it has application countless ways. It was just a great, simple teaching. Okay. Um, let's go to one version of the sutra anyway. Do not pursue the past. That means don't revive or chase, chase after it. Uh, I think you're getting some sense of what that means. Let's see, maybe I have a different way of phrasing it. Often the past has been very painful, and yet we find ourselves there. We find ourselves um, really caught, sometimes it's dramatic, uh, old wounds that surface. And somehow or another, we can't, in quotes, get rid of them. The teaching is not saying try to block it out. What it's saying is observe it, observe the past. Don't give it so, uh, the reason it's so powerful is because we identify with it and we're taken over by it, we're caught up in it and it just gives it power and then it re reinstates itself again and again. And <clears throat> who doesn't know what I'm talking about? I'm sure you all do. Let me give you some dramatic examples. Um, one case that was helpful, two that were not too helpful. I know uh, some people have been so uh, victimized by their past, let's say the Holocaust or in uh, Soviet Russia, uh, the gulags or the Vietnam War, and I've known a fair number of people from all three and who have come to meditation for one reason or another or have been friends and have not been interested in meditation. The ones who've had no meditation, it's a very different thing, but it's interesting to see. Let's call the first person Madam X, Russian woman who lost her parents, 
and two husbands in the gulags. Two of them. One died. She lived. She wasn't in it. She was. She lived outside. A family could live outside it. Uh, these were intellectuals, doctors, artists, who were Stalin didn't like. And uh, she married his best friend, and then he died as well. Uh, so she lost a lot. And I met her, oh, about six or seven years ago, so it's many years after the event. And the woman is living in a living hell and working ferociously to stay there. Well, why? Uh, no attempt on my part to explain some of the sense behind this teaching was helpful. She didn't have a meditation practice and was not interested in developing one. And for her, it was a clinging uh, to all those loved people. Somehow, if she was able to let that go and live fully in the present moment, psychologically, it felt like to her, this has come out of many chats, as if she was turning her back on people she loved. Quite the opposite, of course. You know, if they could see from wherever they are, uh, would they want her to keep suffering? I mean, in other words, Stalin's long arm is still effective 50 years later, which is or 40 years, whatever. Um, it's affected her, her entire life, her health. She has two sons uh, who she's so uh, enveloped that, it's, that their relationship with her is so problematic that they love her, but they can't be with her. And the only time she's really resembling happy is when she's with them. And the rest of the time, uh, so you can see that if you don't take care of these wounds, uh, not only don't they go away, but they fester and they make it impossible to freshly enjoy and freely enjoy the present moment. I won't go on with all of them, but the Vietnam one is another one. Um, I helped Thich Nhat Hanh lead a retreat just for Vietnam veterans some years ago. And he gave me a few groups of veterans because I was in the army for two years. And he thought that I would have some understanding of military life. Of course I did. It turned out that these soldiers hated me because I wasn't in, it was a mem membership in a special club, if any of you have been there. And I didn't ask for the job. Thich Nhat Hanh told me to, so I did it. Like, how dare you pretend that you're a soldier the way we were? It was a nightmare over there. I'm saying I'm not. They would actually attack me. Uh, I'm not. I'm just trying to, and they were there supposedly to learn meditation. Maybe one or two did, and it helped. But there, there was a, a, an inability to let go of the past. Uh, again, dead buddies uh, coming out of it so disillusioned and lost that their life was a mess, and just circling around again and again, going from one VA hospital to another, some alcoholic, some drug addicted, uh, uh, roaming about sort of lost souls. I met one woman who was able to use this practice. She lost her parents to the Holocaust, to the Nazis. And to her credit, I don't know where she got, we, we worked on this. She hadn't seen, the last time she saw her parents was when she was 11. And they were both taken away and she never saw them again. She was saved by uh, uh, by Catholics who put her in a nunnery in France, this was. Not in a nunnery, in a, I don't know what, convent. But anyway, she was brought up there. And then she moved to the States when she grew up 
after the war. Uh, she had had nightmares of this past year after year, night after night. And she came to Vipassana meditation. And I've never had to work so hard with anyone in my life. We had such ups and downs. She was, she was furious with me. Again, you can't understand. I said, of course I can't. Uh, left for a year, came back. Uh, finally, she started to be able to use the tools of this practice. She couldn't for the same reason. She felt that to really look at the pain of those memories uh, would be betraying our parents. And it took quite a while to understand that that was an illusion. That's part of what the Buddha means by delusion. Okay. And we all know smaller things where we're, we're caught up in the past, don't we? I mean, it's not uh, a surprise what I'm, what I'm saying. Um, the reason she was able to come to some sanity and to some happiness was that finally she was able to use these teachings in the way in which they were intended to look carefully at memories as being memories. That's what they are. They're not the people. They're memories of the people. And looking at her relationship to memory, why am I holding on to these memories for dear life? What will happen if I let go? Well, she had all kinds of uh, nonsensical but powerful reasons of what would happen to her. And it took her quite a while of insightful seeing. Insight in two senses. Insight, uh, there's what you could call reflective insight, which is where you use your intellect and your thinking process intelligently to see, oh, I see, that's just a memory. Someone explains it to me and now I get it. And that's one level uh, on a spectrum of depth that isn't the deepest. And there's direct insight, which is a lot what we're practicing, which is clear, direct seeing into what a memory is. You see it as something you see that it's impermanent and, and empty. Empty doesn't mean it's not there. But it has a cloud-like nature to it because it decomposes and it's gone. And then there's the present and clarity of mind, which enables you to face whatever remains with a much better chance. Okay. Um, make sure there's some other... One last one. If you get rigid about these things, they backfire. That's why there's, the Buddha was very skillful, and there's a term called upaya, sometimes translated skillful means. Uh, very, very important. It means that a teaching can be right, but not correct, or the other way around, correct, but it's not right in that situation. And this happened with my own mother. She was dying. She was 90 um, and was in the hospital and surrounded by her intimate family, as we were there very, very often, and in paraly almost paralyzed. Her brain was quite clear. She could only move one arm. Um, breathing was so belabored that it was excruciating to be in the room and to hear the strain, the effort it took for her to to keep e to to uh, help each breath happen, and so Mr. Big Dharma Hotshot, at a certain point, 
I was holding her hand, and I gave her beautiful Dharma teaching. I'm holding this one thing that isn't paralyzed. And, and a 90-year-old woman, she's holding my hand. And I start talking about, well, Mom, this body has served you well for 90 years. Uh, it's time to let it go. It's okay. You don't have to fight. Just relax. Everything's okay. And every time I use anything resembling like let go and so forth, her hand would get tighter and tighter. And I thought she was going to crush my hand. I'm following the teachings. What's wrong with this woman? Why doesn't she? Well, she wasn't a practitioner. Um, and suddenly it dawned on me that mainly I was concerned about myself and the rest of my family. We were uncomfortable with her breathing. I wanted her to let go so we wouldn't be in such pain. And then when I shifted to metta, I didn't use that word. Uh, and I just said, Mom, you lived a very loving life, which she did. And you, here are all the people, we love you, and so forth. She smiled, she let go of my hand, and she was just very, very happy. Now, I learned this lesson earlier regarding the past, whenever my sister and I would visit her. Uh, it was just an incessant uh, flow of how, when we were 10, and when we were 9, and when we were 11, and getting out the old photographs. And at first I just hated it, and I just wanted to try to come back to the present. I learned that, and when I got to the hospital, apparently I forgot it again. Because I saw, well, what is her present? She's 90, she's very sick, this, she wasn't in the hospital. She's lonely, her husband died. Um, she's uncomfortable, uh, she sees her, her children, but you know we don't live with her. And the present is bleak, and the future is even worse. She has no future. I mean, if you believe in rebirth or all that stuff, then she would have been all set, but she didn't. And at a certain point, once I saw it from her point of view, I didn't get so offended or it wasn't so hard on me. Sort of like, of course, let's relive, you know, 12-year-old times for the hundredth time. And I saw how much satisfaction it gave. So sometimes we do have to dip into the past to get through the present. Now, it's not a very good solution if you're going to be living longer. But if someone doesn't have a practice, and even in this sutra, you'll see when I read further into it, probably not tonight, the Buddha talks about people who are uninstructed. Let's say ordinary people. That sounds demeaning. But what he means are people who are uninstructed. They don't have these resources. So, of course, grasping after the future, getting enveloped by the past, and not looking deeply and insightfully into the present, uh, that's not what they're going to be able to do. They are going to get caught up in past and future. There's just a tremendous habit energy that's very powerful. Or it gives them hope. That's more the future. We'll get to that um, next time. Um, Let's finish up with the, the title, come back to it. The reason I think that all three are correct, they all give you somewhat different angles on what this sutta is saying, is if we say it's what true solitude is, if you recall I was, uh, from two nights ago, uh, there's solitude, kind of external solitude, 
which just out of form. That if a person is uh, living in the forest, or living alone perhaps, or living in a cave, we tend to think of that uh, maybe if they, they're, they're involved in solitude, they're living alone. And the Buddha corrected that, you remember, in, a, in another related sutta, by saying, that's nice, and that can be helpful, but the real, the real solitude is when you're not lost in what's ahead of you, not lost in what's in back of you, and you're not uh, making self out of what's happening right now. Uh, he was pointing out the difference between inner and outer in a way that's very, very important and has important implications. Part of my Korean adventure is I spent some time with two hermits. Uh, they, they were both old, and people were allowed to come and visit them. They were both very famous in the regions, the mountains. They each were in a different mountain. Uh, the first hermit didn't know how old he was. He'd been living in this cave, in this mountain. His cave was immaculate. Uh, and he did everything you would do in a monastery. He bowed at certain hours. He meditated. He glowed. The villagers estimated he was somewhere between 90 and 95. People came to him from all over Korea. Not a steady flow. It was very hard to get up there. Because in spite of living in that cave for what they think must have been about 40 to 50 years, um, he could listen to your problems about marriage, about your job, what you're afraid of, and be very, very helpful. That's how clear he was. And it was a joy to be with him. His, he was radiant. His eyes just sparkled. I have photographs of him home. And so I have a hunch he knew what real intimacy was. He wasn't lost in some fanciful future. He was perfectly happy just being. I stayed with a second hermit, who also was well-known, and maybe I'm wrong, but I couldn't wait to get out of there. My conclusion was, this guy's just a misfit. You know, thank God he can stay. You know, it was, it was like a, a, a hut, because he can't be with people. I mean, he, he was just restless and impatient and... You know, just uh, he wasn't helpful, and he was just old and had lived alone in a place. <laughs> and you, if you call him a hermit, oh, hermit, oh, is, he must be a sage. Not necessarily. You can be an old fool. It happens. Living on this planet a long time is no guarantee of anything. It's what you do with your time here. So the first title, I think that's clear. It's kind of, it's intimacy, intimacy with your own experience so that therefore you can be intimate with nature, with other people, and that's the value of it. It's not to isolate you because if you take the inner meaning of solitude, that means you can be living in the middle of a city and be free that way. Of course, you can also be living alone in a cave and free. It's not, don't do that. It's just that don't get attached to forms so easily, any forms. The second one, an auspicious day, that's the second translation. Well, if your mind is not so lost in, in a fanciful future and not wasting so much time in a dead past um, and able to relate directly and immediately with the present, that is, that augurs well you know, to bring good things out of that. I think at least some of you who have been here, been around the block a bit doing this practice, you know that that's so. So that makes sense. Um, the third 
the one fortunate attachment that is if you're able to be to have true intimacy it's auspicious and that which is auspicious is that ability to be directly mindful without being pushed around by the past or the future being able to hold your ground not washed away swallowed up by the past or the future uh, if you can get attached to that more power to you one last afterthought because often people will say well God he's just eliminated the past so what do I have to do get a, a, a lobotomy you know and kind of wouldn't that be easier um, it's not to eliminate the past you can still have memories you do have memories you can still look at them but you look at them you know what you're doing you're standing firmly in the present moment knowing that you're examining a memory and sometimes you can learn a lot if you see yesterday through today's eyes or as freshly uh, so that it's not that the past is over with and we have to kill the past not at all it's just a s certain way of relating to the past that's destructive if any of you are historians you can stay in your profession it's okay <laughs> as long as you know that what you're doing is trying to reconstruct the past in an intelligent way if you're getting lost in the past and your present life is a mess come to IMS we'll straighten you out oh you're already here um, may we all become chronic mindfulness yogis. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.